Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning as we continue this series, this I Am series. We have a couple weeks left, and we're going to culminate this on Easter with the I Am statement, that is, I Am the Resurrection and the Life. But today, we're going into a different one. I want to review for us, if you're new to the church, maybe you're visiting or just uh, missed a few, I want to just kind of give you the template that we've been kind of going after this whole series long, because these I Am statements of Jesus are revolutionary, and they change our lives, and they're so relevant to us. But every one of the I Am statements does three things. One of them is they reveal that Jesus is the fulfillment, perfection, and completion of an Old Testament image or prophecy. We are going to see that big time today. The second thing they do is that they reveal that Christ alone can satisfy the deepest longing of every human heart. And every I Am statement reveals Christ more fully so that we can respond more appropriately in deeper worship. You've noticed that we've kind of flipped the script this morning. We're doing the message up front, and that is because we're going to worship appropriately as a response to what God is going to show us today in his words. I hope you're excited. Hope you buckle your seatbelts because we're going for a ride this morning. Today's I Am statement is going to bring together two very prominent Old Testament characters. Abraham and Moses. You're going to see how they work together. Abraham, of course, is the person chosen by God to represent all the people who will ever walk by faith. He's held up as a father of faith. He also is the father, uh, biologically, of the Jewish nation. And he was considered righteous by God because he believed what God said and chose to completely reorient his life around God's word. And by the way, that's what faith and belief mean. It means God says something and you completely reorient your life around that truth. It kind of goes like this. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. Maybe you've heard that before. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. If we can approach the word of God that way, it will change our lives, just like it changed Abraham. Believe what God said. Moses, of course, is the person chosen to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And God gave him the first five books of the Bible to write. And so he's a very prominent feature of the Old Testament as well. We've been talking in this whole series, kind of a thread that is also kind of woven through is our own identity. We've been talking a lot about identity in this series. We all struggle to find identity. And the bottom line is, if you've missed it, is that there is no meaningful identity for you or me apart from a restored relationship with God. And so if being united to Christ is not your primary identity, what happens is you're going to attach yourself to something else in order to find your true identity. And that's going to be something less than what God wants. It's going to be something inferior because the best thing God can possibly ever give you is himself. Moses, therefore, is a perfect picture of someone who had a very complicated sense of identity. Let me tell you a bit about Moses. Moses was the third child born to a Hebrew slave couple in Egypt, Amram and Jochebed. And if Moses had stayed in that situation, he would have grown up as a slave. And as a slave, he would have been destined to live out one of the most dehumanizing existences imaginable. 
uh, a life with no dignity. In fact, all sense of personhood would have been beaten out of him by brutal slave masters. He would have had no real possessions, no hope, no future, just the endless monotony of crushing manual labor until his body broke down and wore out and crumpled under him into the grave. That was the fate of slaves in Egypt. Except that God had a different plan for Moses. You see, Pharaoh had commanded that every baby boy that was born among the Hebrews be killed. But Jochebed would not comply with that because she feared God more than she feared Pharaoh. And she hid Moses until she could no longer. You may know the story. She puts him into a, a little floating basket and puts him onto the Nile River. And three-month-old baby, uh, baby Moses is pulled out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter and immediately becomes royalty. His identity, you see, was changed in an instant. And he grew up with privilege instead of slavery. And that may seem like a pretty good trade-up from our vantage point. But as a grown man, um, he goes and he sees the brutal oppression of his own people by the Egyptians. And he becomes so aggravated in his spirit that he murders one of these Egyptian slave drivers and tries to hide the body in the sand. But the next day, he learns that his murder has been found out and he fears for his own life because Pharaoh has now found out about it and is trying to kill him. So Moses flees into the wilderness, leaving behind all the privileges of royalty and every trace of identity he ever had. When he left, he left with only his life. He left behind wealth and privilege and a future as the prince of Egypt. And there's no going back to Egypt for uh, Moses. He was a fugitive now. There was a bounty on his head. And so he now assumes another new identity, a nomadic existence in the wilderness being a shepherd. All of his education and training from Egypt now useless. Gone are the royal galas and the processions and the wine and the entertainment, the food of a busy city. Now the only sound he hears is the occasional bleating of a sheep for 40 years. And if you were to meet Moses at this time in his life and you were to say, hey, Moses, who are you? What's your identity? I don't really think he'd have an answer for you. He would just kind of say, I'm a shepherd. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter anyway. But one day that all changes because God reveals himself to Moses out of the burning bush. And you want to talk about an intersection that changes Moses' life, that changes the nation of Israel's trajectory, and changes the course of all human history. This is a major intersection. We read about it in Exodus chapter 3. And I'm going to ask Louis to come and read the scripture this morning. If you have your Bible, it's going to be Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to have Louis read that for us right now. One day, Moses was tending to the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid 
to look at God. Then the Lord told him again, told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. But Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I, say? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. So at this burning bush, God reveals himself to Moses by a most peculiar name, I Am, the self-existent God who lives in the eternal present, transcendent and independent of time and space and matter. And this one who is called I Am is going to send Moses to deliver the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And when the people asked Moses, who sent you? By what authority have you come? The reply was to be simple. Tell them, I am has sent you. This is one of the names of God. I am. And God also revealed his name, his personal name, uh, Yahweh, to them. This is the eternal name of God for all generations. Now, Y-H-W-H is not pronounceable, right? It's all consonants. There's no vowels. And so what we've done over the years is we've added vowels in so that we can pronounce it. And we call it Yahweh. We think that's what it is. But the point is, it's the special personal name of God. And Yahweh is I am. I am is Yahweh. It's the same God. So God reveals himself using the personal name. And I want you to keep in mind that this is the same God, Yahweh and I am. Because we're going to fast forward 1,500 years now in in human history. And we're going to come to John chapter 8, where Jesus is having one of the most heated exchanges of his life with corrupt religious people. And we're going to read about that now in John chapter 8. I encourage you to follow along or listen along because this is the words of Christ. He's defining his identity here in John chapter 8. Louis is going to read it for us again. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have, never been to, we have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be, you'll be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but his son is a part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there is no room in your heart for my message. I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, 
Jesus replied, For if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you are trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you are imitating your real father. They replied, We aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Jesus told them, If God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm, trying to, what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me, for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell you the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truly accuse me of sin? And since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. But you don't listen because you don't belong to God. The people retorted, You Samaritan devil, don't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? No, Jesus said, I have no demon in me. For I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, Now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say, Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. And so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, If I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it's my Father who will give glory, will give glory me. Who will glorify me, sorry. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And I want us to catch the gravity of what Jesus is saying here because Jesus applies the divine name, I am, to himself. He's taking the divine name, Yahweh, the eternal God, for himself. Can you imagine the shock that is going through this crowd right now? Jesus, who is a mere man, so they thought, claiming the divine name, claiming I am for himself. He's claiming to be God. Now, some people will say to you, well, you know, there's no place in the Bible where Jesus claimed to be God. 
You know why that is? It's because we read the Bible with 2023 lenses. When you approach the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, you must read it with first century lenses. And when you do that, you will discover that Jesus absolutely did claim to be God because he didn't have to say, I am God. He said it 10 times stronger by saying, before Abraham was, I am. He put the two together, Abraham and Moses, and his Jewish listeners knew exactly what he meant. That's why they tried to kill him, because Jesus claimed to be the same God who spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Are you following that? That's what's happening here. And and by the way, I need to correct some common misunderstandings, because in my years of ministry, including here at MVF, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. He's kind of harsh. There's bloodshed everywhere. He always seems to be angry. I like the God of the New Testament. That's my kind of God. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that or said that? Well, the the problem with that statement is that it's the same God. Same God. In fact, I would challenge you, find a concordance or an online search tool and look up in the Bible in the Old Testament how many times it talks about God's love and his mercy. And you will find hundreds of times the God of the Old Testament is loving and merciful. And you go to the New Testament and look up how many times it talks about God's wrath, his judgment, his anger, and what's coming to this world. And you will find tons of examples in the New Testament of who God is. It's the same God. In the Old Testament, God has love and he has judgment. In the New Testament, God has love and he has judgment. It's the same God. And I want us to understand that this morning. Another big misunderstanding you'll hear from people in kind of the liberal, progressive, kind of pseudo-false Christianity, right? They try to make an argument from silence saying, well, you know, when Jesus walked on the earth, he never talked about hot-button social issues like homosexuality or abortion. So why does the church make such a big deal about it? Well, it's the same answer. It's the same God. Jesus did not have to come and repeat everything in the Old Testament. It was already written. It's the same God. The same moral law that Moses, it was Jesus who gave the law to Moses. You'll find out in the, in the mountain of Sinai when he received the law. It's the same God, same authority. And God is always in agreement with himself. And so the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are always in agreement on everything. Think of the Trinity like this. This may be helpful. It's, it's just one analogy. It has its breakdowns. But think of a council with three table, or three chairs around a table. It's three persons, all equal in power and glory. They agree on everything. They love each other perfectly within themselves. They are in agreement on everything. But within that, there are roles. And the Father has sent the Son, and the Son voluntarily came to this earth to give his life for us. It's the same God. And I want to illustrate for you the power that Jesus has with this I am statement. Because there's other times, uh, particularly in the book of John, when he uses I am all by itself. For example, you remember when Jesus, before he went to the cross, he spent the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, Judas had agreed to betray him. He brought with him soldiers and priests. And they had clubs and they had torches. And they were going to arrest Jesus. And so Jesus, he's got his 11 disciples with him. And he steps forward and says, who do you seek? And they said to him, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he stepped forward again and said, I am. And you know what happened in that moment, John 18? They fell to the ground just at his statement, I am. That's all he had to say. You would think maybe in their minds that they would have thought, maybe we're in over our heads here. Maybe Jesus is who he claims to be. Maybe we ought to back off. And Jesus could have called 10,000 angels to his assistance, and he could have wiped them all out. But he allows them to get up on their feet, and he willingly goes with them. They arrest him. And so what is the identity of Jesus? Well, even as he goes to the cross, he is perfectly secure in his identity because Jesus Christ is the eternal, almighty, sovereign God of the universe. 
And the Trinity had made an agreement in eternity past that Jesus would be the one to be sent into the world to take on the role of a servant and die on a cross for hopeless humanity in order to reconcile them to God. Remember, too, that Jesus is called the second Adam. What does that mean? It means Jesus is the perfection of what humanity is supposed to be. In fact, all that broken humans ever failed to be, Jesus perfected. In other words, if you want to know what it is truly to be fully flourishing human, look at Jesus, because he modeled for us exactly what Adam should have done and what we should do. And so how Jesus lived flowed out of his identity. And you know what? It's the same for you and me. How you choose to live your life is going to flow from what you perceive your identity to be. When you have a broken relationship with God, you're going to have a false and distorted sense of who you are. Therefore, the way you live will become broken and distorted. Therefore, the way you treat other people is going to become broken and distorted. You're going to chase relationships and possessions and priorities that will destroy you. And your pursuits will become what you think is your identity. But people who are secure in their identity as loved children of God, they're going to live differently. They're going to be faithful in their marriage, and their lives are going to be characterized by integrity. They're going to be fruitful for the kingdom of God, and they're not going to be so worried about building their own kingdom. Their primary passion is building the kingdom of God. Because our security as children of God comes from whose we are. Not even so much who you are. Who do you belong to? That is your identity as a child of God. If you want to have significance and security in this life, you must understand and embrace your new relationship with Jesus. And this is the symbol that we talk about all the time, which is baptism. We die with Christ in our sin. We're crucified with Christ. We're joined with him in his death and burial. And then we're raised to life again, a new life, union with him into eternal life. And we have to understand that because the Bible says if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. So I want to just review for a moment, see how we're doing. See if I'm following the template this morning. Every I am statement does three things. It reveals that Christ alone is the fulfillment, perfection, and completion of an Old Testament image or prophecy. Have we done that? Yes, because Jesus is the same I am that appeared to Moses. Jesus is the eternal God. We've done that. We've established that. The second thing that we want to talk about is the I am statements all reveal that Christ alone can satisfy every longing of the human heart. Let's dig into that for a second. Because all of our hearts long for the transcendent. We long for a connection with the supernatural. In fact, that's why we watch movies or attend professional sporting events or go to concerts. That's why we love the arts and why we plan vacations. Because we long to witness and be part of exceptional things, accelerating things, pleasurable things. But what all of those things ought to do is point us to the ultimate glory of Jesus. By the way, there's nothing wrong with any of those things I just listed, but they should remind us in our heart of hearts that what we truly long for is to see the glory of God face to face. Because that's why God made us, to know him. In fact, every God-honoring pleasure on this life that we have is supposed to point us to the ultimate pleasure in our life, which is God himself. And church, I don't want you to miss this this morning. Jesus ought to be the greatest longing of your heart. 
the greatest passion of your lives as a child of God, bought by the blood of the Lamb, should be to see Jesus face to face one day, to fall at his feet in overwhelming gratitude that he would die on the cross to save you from the eternal consequence of your sin and give you the undeserved gift of eternal life. But I just fear for many in this room this morning that one day you will stand before the great I am, and instead of joy, you will weep because you've made your life about pursuing a thousand and one other things ahead of Jesus and his kingdom. And it'll be too late then. You'll have wasted your life. And so I urge you, I plead with you, give your life to Jesus completely today. Surrender everything to him today. Go all in for him today, just like he went all in for you at the cross. Amen? Jesus fulfills the longing of every human heart because he created us and hardwired us for an eternity where we're going to be in loving and perfect relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. That is why he created us, and that's why he redeemed us at the cross. And so let her see. What else does the, do the I Am statements do for us? They reveal Christ more fully to us so that we might respond appropriately in deeper worship. And so I want to pick up for us five additional I am statements that don't come in the book of John. They come in the book of Revelation. John also wrote Revelation. And so we have eight I am statements in John, but we have five other ones in Revelation. And Revelation, of course, is a very fascinating book because the scenes that we see in Revelation are contrasted against each other, right? They go from absolutely horrific to magnificent and back again, right? It's the worst nightmare you could ever have compared to the best, most beautiful dream you could ever have, right? That's what's happening in Revelation. But one thing is crystal clear in Revelation. God is sovereign. He holds the future in his hands, and Jesus Christ will be the King of kings, and he will be the focal point of all eternity. And uh, by the way, if you need some encouragement today, I just need to remind you that in the end, Jesus wins it all. All. Some of you ever play poker, and the, the stakes are high, and the chips are getting high, and you lay down the hand that wins it all, all the chips, right? That's what happens in the end with Jesus. He gets all the chips. So I want to encourage you today. It may feel to you like Jesus is never coming back. I mean, how much worse can it get, right? It may seem like we're losing when it comes to moral and cultural battles in our nation, but I want to tell you God's promises will all come true, so keep holding on and don't lose heart. Jesus is surely coming again. I want to read a few passages from Revelation to illustrate this for you. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, I am, here it is, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Two verses down in, in verse 17, John says, when I saw him, this Alpha and Omega character, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. This is the Alpha Omega speaking. And this is, by the way, where cults kind of trip and fall. Because when did the Alpha and Omega, they'll all agree that speaking of God, when did he die? The Alpha and Omega died at the cross, and he rose from the grave, therefore he lives forevermore. Therefore, again, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He holds the keys of death and the grave. That's Jesus. Then in chapter 21 of Revelation, 
It says, and one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Who else said one time, it is finished? Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 12, it says, look, Jesus is talking. He says, look, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's three I am statements there, right? All saying the same thing. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. In this little passage, we've got five I am statements. Alpha and Omega, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Beginning and the end, first and the last. Three ways of saying the same thing, but there are three statements. And then we get this other statement that says, I am both the source of David. In other words, I'm the creator of David. And I'm the heir to his throne. Because Jesus was born in a human lineage when he came into this earth. And he has a rightful, he's the rightful heir to the throne of David. So he claims to be that one. I am the source of David and the heir to his throne. And I am the bright morning star. Again, speaking to his glory, his magnificence. Remember, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. All of these speak to the same thing. And what I've just read for you now in the book of Revelation is the hope of every believer. To see Jesus as he truly is, the risen, exalted Savior, finally and forever revealed in all of his majesty and splendor. Our jaws will hit the floor, and so will our knees. To see Jesus one day will be the most breathtaking experience in the entire universe. I have no adequate pictures to describe it for you. No artist concept could ever convey what it will be like to see Jesus in all of his glory one day. But we can catch a glimpse of it as we worship together, which is why worship is the central priority of the church. Everything we do as a church should come back to worship. It's all about Jesus in the end. Everything that we do as a church evangelism, discipleship, children's ministry, everything we do should be pointing people to the inexhaustible glories of Christ. It's the priority of the church. And when we use the word hope in the Christian community, that's what we mean. Our hope is to see Jesus, to be with him, to know him, to be fully known by him, to be entirely lost in his presence and his embrace for all eternity. Nothing else matters like this. You know that a day is soon coming when all will be made well for we who believe in Christ and have turned our lives over to him. But things will not be well for those who have rejected Christ. We know there's coming a day when every sickness in our bodies will be healed for those of us who have believed in Christ. But those who have rejected him will not be healed. We know that there's coming a day when everything that's broken will be restored for those of us who believe in Christ. But for those who have rejected Christ, it will not be restored. This is the hope that we must extend to a hopeless world because Jesus is the first and the last. By now, the cat's out of the bag. You, know, you figured this out, right? Jesus is the creator. He is the one in Genesis chapter 1 who said, let there be light. And what did he mean when he said that? 
Physical light, that's certainly part of it. But more than that, it is let there be revelation of myself. Let there be a stage for my glory to be revealed. Let there be a canvas for my light to shine on. That's what he's saying in the first chapter of Genesis. And I wonder, because in the end of history, as the curtain is pulled on eternity, I wonder. You see, he's the final word, and he's the last one standing. Would he, as he leads the believers into all eternity, would he turn around to us and say, let there be light once again, a stage for his glory as he unveils to us his splendor. These are dark days on planet Earth. Several of of you, even this past week or two, have just expressed to some of us on staff and myself that things just feel so heavy right now. I mean, we thought that COVID was in the background and it had gone away, but things are still not resolved and things are still heavy in our families and our marriages. And some of you are fighting battles this morning in your own families. I just want to remind you that we need to cling to our champion Jesus more than ever. We just need to hold on a little bit longer because this glorious Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world, he's coming again. And our dark world needs to respond to him now. It's urgent because the end of the world is coming. And by the way, that is what faithful Christians have believed in every generation for the last 2,000 years. Jesus could return in my lifetime. Maybe the things that you see in the world around you make you wonder about that. You would be on solid ground to have those questions, right? But the point is, are you ready to meet Jesus today? We could spend countless hours speculating on the day or hour of Jesus' return. It could be this week or not for another hundred years. We don't know, but that's not the point. The point is that no child of God should ever be afraid about current world events or about the future or worried about what kind of world your kids are going to have to grow up in. Jesus wants us to be prepared for his return today. And by the way, preparation does not mean having 10,000 rounds of ammunition in your garage stored, right? It doesn't mean having 600 pounds of rice and beans stored away in case things get bad. How do we get ready to meet the Alpha and the Omega? This one who holds our very breath in his hands. First of all, if you're a Christian, get spirit-filled. Live in constant, active confession of your sins. Get serious about your relationship with God. Make sure you're keeping short accounts with God. Then when Jesus returns, you won't be found lazy and consumed by material possessions or earthly pleasures or dabbling in sin. You don't want to have wasted your life chasing anything but Jesus in this life. When he returns, will you be found a faithful servant or will you be found a slovenly, unfaithful servant? Another way that we prepare for the return of the great I am is by praying for the lost and giving of our financial resources to see the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of the lost. And specifically right here on the I-70 corridor where we live, we don't know how long God is going to wait until he sends Jesus back to get us. But for a little while longer, he extends his gospel mercy and reconciliation to the lost. And we know that a day is coming when people will no longer have the opportunity to be saved. And my friends, it would be a terrible error for you to pass away with a large sum of money in your bank account that will do you no good on the day of your death. Send it into the kingdom now, because when you do that, you'll be sending it home to glory, and it'll be there waiting for you. It's the only guaranteed return on investment you can have in this life. Send your money into the kingdom now, for the harvest is great, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. 
And we need to be praying for lost people. Easter is coming. Some of you saw the little tickets on your chair as you came in. Who are you inviting to Easter? Your unsaved friends, your neighbors. We've been talking a lot about this one habit. Pastor Don shared with us last week. Pastor Mike reiterated it last week. The one habit. You set your phone, set an alarm on your phone every day at 1 o'clock to remind you to pray for that one person in your life who's far from God. And hopefully you invite them to Easter. We're praying. We're believing great things for Easter, folks. We're, we're praying boldly that 1,500 people might come through these doors on Easter. And we're going to be presenting the gospel. It's going to be Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Kind of fitting, huh? Wouldn't it be awesome if 100 people gave their hearts to Christ on Easter? 33, 33, and 34, right? In the three services. We're having three services on Easter. We need to be praying about that church. Will you be praying for your church? Pray for Pastor Don as he prepares that message. Pray for the worship team as we prepare for that Sunday. We want to see a harvest of souls. There are 10,000 people here in the I-70 corridor who will face a Christless eternity if they were to pass away today. We've got to be concerned about that. We've got to become passionate about that. We've got to shake off the apathy that is in us. Because Jesus is coming soon. There's an action item for you if you're not a Christian here today. If you've come into this church maybe the first time or maybe you've sat here a hundred times and you've never given your life to Christ, today your action item is simple. Turn from your sin right now and pray to Jesus to save you and to give you the gift of eternal life because the Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we confess our sins to Jesus. We believe in our heart that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again on the third day. The Bible says if you believe that and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. You see, Jesus is calling all of us today, every person in this room, no matter where you are, you've been a Christian for 30 years, you've been a Christian for three months, you're not yet a Christian. The invitation is open to all of us. And I want to encourage you, let your hearts be set on this hope and this wonder of Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come, the self-existent one who stands before us today in this place and says, before Abraham was, I am. Come on, church, are you ready to worship this morning? Let's respond in our hearts. Let's raise our hands. Let's give him everything we've got this morning. Let's go after it. Let's stand to our feet.